0: Welcome to episode 5 of the Paperless Podcast. I am Jake and today I'm with Robin Batterson who has just finished his Masters in Bioinformatics from the University of Bristol um, where he investigated tree tracking demography um, at scale using repeat airborne laser scanning. Not too sure what that really means at the moment but we're going to try and delve into his work a little bit now. Um, Also touch on Robin's passion for climbing, outdoors, nature and what we can really expect from the world of ecology going forward, especially with things like climate change and, yeah, the threats that, that our European forests are under. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, welcome.
1: Hi. Uh, yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for having <laughs> me. It's
0: good for you to be on. Um, yeah, first of all, can you just describe tree demography? Because I don't think many people know that term specifically.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, simply put, demography is like the study of populations. Um, so tree demography is then studying populations of, of trees and their forests essentially um, so typically we'll have done that at like a smaller scale like one acre scale where you can go around and measure every single tree separately um, and then with my work it, for my masters I was trying to expand that so we we're tracking a whole population of a forest um, in one go. Yeah so the demography is basically the population yeah. of trees
0: within yeah, a, yeah. a spatial yeah. area wherever that be an yeah. acre or a, yeah, a yeah. huge country. Nice and You sort of investigated with your master's in Mm -hmm. bioinformatics the difficulty of tracking tree demography over time. What makes tracking demography like this, the tree demography, so difficult?
1: I mean, um, tracking it is difficult because it's so time intensive. Um, As I said, like, typically it's done at, like, a stand level to measure individual trees. And you need to go out there, especially in tropical rainforests and all this kind of stuff, and go and literally individually measure each one. So you can measure like demography of a small scale but that's not representative the whole ecosystem Mm -hmm. um so then with my masters we we leverage like um remote sensing um to be able to look at a much wider area kind of like like 25 kilometers squared area and then yeah that kind of basically gives you a better overview of what's happening in the forest so if you're measuring certain things like mortality like if you've got a single acre squared you might measure like one dead tree in that area, but you don't know if that's representative of the whole place okay. or like it might be a, a really unique part of the ecosystem where you've got a lot of like nutrient concentration. Oh, so the trees, huge biodiversity, yeah, exactly. Like so right. the trees like grow much better there, mm-hmm. but you like you look over and like kind of like I don't know 400 meters that way, there's a completely different, like kind of small ecosystem happening. Um, so you don't have a representative scale of, of the area.
0: So that was the sort of premise of the research then, was to try and find a better way to overcome the challenges using this method that you've you've mentioned. Um, Could you sort of go into that a little bit more then and just sort of describe what the method was that you used and why it was better than
1: what we've just described, which can lead to biases? I mean, not better, but different. Like um, measuring individual trees at stand level has its importance. You can get much higher resolution data. This is complementary, so it gives you like, higher high spatial resolution but like specific resolution is less so I use something called airborne laser scanning. Okay. Um, Sounds complicated because like <laughs> yeah.
0: genuinely when I first read it I thought that you were just like going around with these lasers with drones and like I had this real you know Simpsons-esque yeah. thing where it was going to be super high-tech, yeah, complex, yeah. futuristic you flying drones everywhere <laughs> over these like crazy forests. I
1: mean, but... sadly, I wasn't flying the drones. The data was already collected. But okay. the way I describe it to simplify is it's like sonar with lasers. Um, so with sonar, you shoot out like a sound wave and then you get it bounce back and you can time that difference. With this, you essentially shoot like a laser pulse, millions of laser pulses, and then you can time the difference um, for it to get back to the sensor. And then you have a distance measure um and with each pulse like it can maybe hit the top of the canopy and then bounce back but it also can pass through um and hit lower parts of the canopy and then also the ground um so essentially you get a collection of millions of points representing a 3d structure of that forest of the upper canopy um and then also the underlying topography um so that's kind of the data that we were working
0: with so it's not specifically like you're not going to shoot this laser and it'll be like that's an acre that's a that's an oak or that's a, you know, a pine tree. It's more like you'll get a, a distribution of high canopy, mid canopy, low canopy. Yeah. And with that, you can sort of then complement that with, with fo- floor data that you
1: were just mentioning a minute yeah, ago yeah, yeah. to sort I of mean, describe the, the, the demography mm, of, a, of a forest. Right? That's the ideal, like, way to combine these, like, different, okay. different types of data. Um, but for my, my purpose, we had two um, samples. So we had one from 2012. And then from, from 2021, and it was really great because the data collection was very, very similar. So the data, like, aligned kind of almost perfectly. Um, and it's a really great example of, like, how this can be used if it's collected well. Um, so, yeah. So we, we had that. And then from this, like, 3D point cloud of, like, laser points, um, you can produce, like, 2D um, products. Um, so, like, kind of rasters, which will give you, like... The upper canopy and that will kind of give you like shapes of trees and then also like the digital terrain model and that'll give you the underlying topography um, and using the point cloud and that like canopy height model um, you can delineate individual grounds that's and quite been, interesting yeah there's been a few algorithms written to like kind of do that work and I spent a lot of time like kind of selecting and like kind of tuning those so we had the best results um, so from that you can kind of in each time point delineate um, the individual crowns, um, we had roughly 50,000 crowns. Crown trees. quickly, that's, that's... Tree crown. That's um, the top of the tree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and then it was a case of trying to match those. and So kind of like aligning like the centre of one crown and then dropping in like the same crown in like 2021. Okay. And if that matched, then you kind of took that as like a pseudo match, like rough match and then kind of going through there and tidying up the data set.
0: So you were able to basically compare these two data sets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you find many differences in your results? Or was it was it significantly like these are these are the same area of forest?
1: I'm um lo- yeah, it, it worked really well actually. Yeah. So yeah. overall we had about seventy thousand crowns delineated. Right. Um and there are errors in it. And then after like matching them, we kind of retained just over like 45, fifty thousand crowns okay. um, so we lost about 20,000 in the in that matching routine but that's due to like maybe one crown was segmented as two in one time point right. and then one is the other right. so you kind of filter through those errors and you still have a huge representative number of like the number of crowns in the landscape nice. um, and then yeah so from that we could get crown area um, quite easily from like the volume of that and then also height from the lidar data um and yeah, we kind of went from that,
0: yeah, so what I was what from what I understand, when you use this scanning technique, it showed like a significance when measuring the initial tree growth and the landscape depressions is that right yeah, yeah, so when so how does the initial tree size specifically influence the transition from height growth to crown expansion, and can you provide a little bit more detail on the relationship between tea, uh, tree demography mm. which we've just talked yeah, about, yeah. and then this thing called landscape depressions which as the lens goes up and down the lasers will will not pick up on that
1: or is that something that's an it's, error it's that, something yeah. you can pick up okay on. Yes. um so i'll start off with like kind of tree size first yeah let's go like, with that um it's it's generally assumed in ecology like in forest ecology that Smaller trees invest more in height growth mm-hmm. early on, um, and it kind of makes sense. You want to like grow high, break out of the canopy, and get more sunlight. Yeah, that's and sort th- of
0: like everything. Everything, this sort of thing. It's weird how you you learn this at sort of like GCSE, yeah, and, and then it carries through to what you're doing is now PhD, and you forget that there's such a big link to this. But I remember learning that.
1: Yeah, and yeah. When I was like fifteen. Yeah, 15. yeah. It's just those like key core links that are like right. kind of just yeah core to ecology. Yeah. Um, and they're still been investigated and like kind of looked at. Um, so you have that. And then um, due to certain reasons, like they'll stop um, growing high or like their high growth will slow down. And as they become more established in the landscape, then they like expand and grow wider. Right. Um, and we captured this. And that nice. was a really exciting thing because A, it follows like what is expected. So the method works. Um, and then B, we managed to capture it at like a, a, high, a larger scale which was um really important um and then also a lot of what is done in this area kind of you measure like height growth allocation of tree size and it's measured as dbh so okay. diameter of breast height yeah. we were able to model that as like crown volume and whole tree volume so you get the area and you times it by the height which is maybe a better representation of like the size of the tree. So that was one key finding that we had, which was really important. It proved the method worked and it kind of followed along with like ecological understanding.
0: Sort of Um, followed that GCSE level of like understanding of ecology that trees grow fast, then they try and branch out, get the sunlight, take over the forest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And
1: slowly become established. Um, and then the other thing was topography. Um, so as I said, the like topography the
0: is different to demography, by the way. This is the yeah, sort yeah. of like the level. Is it the the ground height? I suppose. Yeah, the and
1: the, the variation way? in that. Um, so like whether you have like a slope, the steepness of the terrain, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, and as I said earlier, like we could measure that with the the laser pulses, like they hit the ground, um, and from that you can extract some different metrics. And the main one we looked at was terrain wetness index. Okay. Um, TWI, which is an indication from the slope of the landscape of where water will likely accumulate. Um, Important given the news this
0: week. I mean, I don't know if anyone's we're, we're recording this now, and there's heavy rains in like Nottingham, Nottinghamshire, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, there's huge flooding across it's the landscape. Flooding. So, is that um, like an implication of, of this, or is that something you can you can um, understand.
1: yeah, yeah. So I guess you, Sorry, could apply that. The there, but. <laughs> you could apply that to watersheds and where's likely to flood, especially yeah. in the UK. Um, right. I mean, the landscape I was working in was in Western Australia okay. and it's in- extremely arid uh, and dry. So we extracted this terrain wetness index and I don't know, because it is dry, like you're kind of thinking like, is this going to have an effect? But we found out it had a huge effect on growth. Um, so areas with a higher terrain weather index um, saw much higher growth in crown air expansion and high growth in in all trees. Um, So that was a really fascinating thing. And it doesn't rain much in this landscape. Um, So it kind of like led us to think um, why that would be. Um, But one thing that happens in this landscape is it burns like periodically, maybe every like, 400 turnages. Mm-hmm. Um And you can imagine that will like redistribute all of the resources and like the nutrients in the trees as kind of ash. And then slowly over time, like small rainfalls kind of like accumulate those nutrients okay, so in these flows.
0: So that's basically, again, I feel like we're going back to this sort of like GCSE yeah. you know, ecology where, you know, as the, as the, as the primary rainforest <coughs> burns, secondary rainforest comes. Yeah. And if there's more water accumulating in certain areas, yeah. then the nutrients from the previous forest accumulates yeah. and therefore... There's more growth yeah. in areas where there's yeah. there's higher nutrients or as you say higher water accumulation, yeah. which is a really important finding from this. Mm. What so we'll go back to sort of that you've you've talked about your results there and two really amazing findings that came out of your your paper. What a lot of people listening to this be like, why, like, yeah. why, why, why are you bothered about where these things and what do you have to do and what's the impact of the data mm. and all that sort of stuff? Can you sort of. Give some context to your research in the in the sort of like wider world yeah, because yeah. I think, especially with I come from a life science background, mm-hmm. I've always found it very difficult to communicate why I do certain things to people. Yeah, you know the wider public. Um, so yeah, explain if you can.
1: I mean, like this is very pertinent for this area. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, like this periodically burns and restarts for Western Australia. Western Australia, is, yeah. um, but the like incidence of forest fires is increasing um, massively. Um, so, we're going to need to know how they're going to respond to that increasing fire regime. Um, so, the stand that I worked in was like really old growth. It was kind of at the end of this. Maybe it hadn't burnt in like 300, 400 years. Right. Um, so, the the like, perfect opportunity for this research is to then recollect that data at different points within this ecosystem of mm-hmm. different burn states. So, maybe it's 100 years after, um, like 50 years after. And then you can model the growth rates in those areas right. and then see how it's going to respond. Um, to an increasing fire regime so can it reach maturity quicker or is it never going to reach maturity and will that system be like constantly degraded
0: which is then an issue then for biodiversity obviously because if, if trees can't reach this certain yeah. level of maturity then they can't pass on their seeds and yeah. allow growth for new you know new saplings yeah. around them and that then has an impact on not only soil because obviously trees they mm-hmm. have a huge impact on soil and soil erosion but also yeah. biodiversity underground invertebrates mycology you know there's a huge amount of things that trees do that sort of the otherwise yeah. would, would you know that is that that is a saying that is com, comes from this where you know there is trees are key to ecosystems mm. and if we do remove them and don't remove them properly yeah. then you know there are catastrophic you know
1: and mature effects, trees as well effects down the line not so. just any trees like you need a, a, a variation in ages you need nice. mature trees there yeah um and you need young trees. You need like a proper like variation across the landscape. And, and obviously, is,
0: yeah. obviously, with climate change as well, we we'll delve into that a little bit. But Australia itself, I mean, Western Australia, I don't know too much about. Mm. But in obviously on the east coast, we've got the Great Barrier Reef that's yeah. that is having significant. I mean, this year could be catastrophic this mm-hmm. summer. They're seeing heat waves that are you know that are damage seriously damaging. Yeah. um how important then is this research in terms of climate change going forward? Is, it, is there a call to action here to like, do more of this so we can, we can understand yeah. this area better so that when we move forward with more wildfires or more flooding and all that sort of thing, is there, is there a, a need for us to have this information so that we can better plan for the future wildlife fires? And 100%. Like
1: um, and it's just understanding what will happen in this world. Like this ecosystem is this... like not my specific site but the ecosystem is the size of england and wales wow so like (laughs) australia is big but australia is big this woodland is the size of england and wales (laughs) and it's just a a piece like in, in western australia it's like either like grassland or like this 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 woodland which is quite quite sparse but if we lose that in that area that's that's a lot of carbon gone um and as i said before like this work helps us track demography at at larger scales. Like it kind of improves what we know over those like individual plot level studies. Um, And then using this data, you can produce like predictive models. Like I've, I've got a a colleague and a friend who's using my data to produce like integral projection models, um, which you can then kind of model the future of, of that ecosystem going forward. And then if we can expand, like this kind of like studies, like the the remote sensing um, across different ecosystems, then we can we can look at different forest ecosystems across the world uh, and really understand what will happen to them in the future. In the future, yeah.
0: which is obviously crucial for, for our understanding of biodiversity, the safeguard of our. You know our natural world is. Yeah. It does depend on data like this because without it, decisions probably won't
1: won't yeah, be made. One hundred percent. And to know those tipping points and to know how much trees will sequester carbon in the uh-huh. future and whether they can and like how much of a role they will play mitigating the climate crisis.
0: And what we might lose as well, like I said, you you said there that we need trees to reach a certain level of maturity. Yeah. If you if you don't let these trees reach maturity, then that species might not be as successful in the future. So therefore. Mm-hmm. We we are sort of shooting ourselves in the foot a little bit. Um, I was gonna ask a really niche question now, and I don't know whether this is gonna like be similar to what you did. But yeah. from when I envisioned your paper and your methods, I had in my head this obviously this Simpson-esque cartoon, loads of drones flying over, yeah, and yeah. lasers going <laughs> everywhere like this. I I thought, can you apply this to different ecosystems completely? Like, could you could you use the same methods? Mm but for things like coral reef, where you can see that they've had differences in height of coral that are grown versus, you know, bleached and yeah. destroyed, or even things like sea ice and mm. desertification mm. Is like that. Is there other, is there ways of transferring the same methods that you've done to yeah. other ecosystems that don't have trees in, but may benefit from this type of research? Yeah, I, know.
1: I mean, to, to touch on what you just said, the sea ice, um, that can more easily be done with like satellite imagery, and you can get reflectance. Okay. Um, and then for like ocean environments and coral reefs, like I was at a, a conference recently in September, um, where we had a, a keynote speaker speaking about this, and they were using um, airborne lidar to track seagrass um, just off the coast and like kind of map like volumes and fluctuations. Again, like it's, it's I don't know whether it's. Perfect to use, like, laser scanning for this. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it definitely has a place. Um, but you can also map the volumes and dimensions of this with just aerial imagery. Okay. So, like, concentrating less on, like, the laser scanning, but on remote sensing. I think remote sensing has a huge part to play in tracking, like, change at, at scale. Yeah. Um, and we need, yeah, need more of that. Need more of that. Yeah. No, that's,
0: that's really interesting. I just had this, when I was reading through, I thought, there must be there must yeah. be other ways of of, you know, using this. Um, I think we've sort of understood your paper quite mm-hmm. well there Um you're obviously still in in the University of Bristol you're doing a PhD at the Salva Lab um, looking at how the European forests in this case are mm-hmm. responding to climate change and how well we can predict this into the future how's how's that going it's it can't be it can't be long into it now are you? Yeah I'm three months
1: in okay. so early days and it's um, it's really exciting actually um, so I'm kind of just working on some interesting data at the moment, get some really good results with that. And the main thing is, we're we're planning our fieldwork campaign, nice. um, which will be end of February. Um, so that's kind of all coming together. I had a really good meeting yesterday, like we we're doing site selections in Scotland. Nice. Um, Where maybe, else? Scotland and or- Scotland. Uh, so many places, so we'll be starting <laughs> off in Sicily, um, nice. working our way to the central Apennines in Italy, and then the Alps in northern Italy, and like Trento, nice. and then out to Tahoe, central Spain, the Pyrenees, um, and then we'll be going to southern Norway, and then up to the Cairngorms in Italy, and then revisiting a few of these sites in summer, adding nice. in Czech Republic and Berchtesgaden in Bavaria. <sighs> Cause so, yeah. I'm going all over Europe. That's Traveling. not too bad. Is it? Um, <laughs> I'll take and it. yeah, your 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 plan is then to sort
0: of look at the forests that you're going to be visiting, yeah. seeing how they're changing over time, yeah. and how climate change is obviously impacting that. Mm-hmm. To do with is it data based or are you looking at more sort of what what? How does the research come together? Do you know that yet? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So I'm going to be collecting. Um, mainly tree cores um so with tree cores you can then kind of count tree rings and like synthesize growth rates for its whole lifetime um and then with that you can see how that's responded to like different climate points like we've got brilliant climate data going back however many years and we can cover that yes. um and then i'll be combining that with other things we can collect in the forest so like competition metrics um a postdoc we're we'll working with will be collecting a lot of like microclimate data um and then we'll also be putting these things on the trees called dendrometers okay um sounds complex <laughs> it's it's actually kind of kind of simple in like rudimentary how they work so you put like a metal band round and okay. then attach it to a device okay. and as the tree grows that band pulls on the device and twists it round okay and then you can measure tree growth at a super fine resolution so like 0.001 millimeters Cool. So we'll be then deploying that, and then I'll be using that like three years of that data to to kind of um, add into add into the data that I'm using to predict cool. forest growth. Um, so yeah.
0: Cool. Well, I've got to ask much climbing on that trip. I know you're you're <laughs> a big fan. Well, you do a lot of climbing, and I think there was a there was a lovely like. When I when I when you reached out to me about this, yeah, um, you said I love to climb, swim, spend time in the out, spending time outside is time well spent. Yeah, um,
1: how important is to balance work with time in nature to you? Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's paramount. Like it, it's kind of a necessity, and I don't know. I I did chemistry as my undergrad. I worked in a lab, and I think as soon as I finished that, like I just had it in my mind that I need to work outdoors. Um, and I'm realizing that now, like I'm going on field work. It, it's, it's so incredible. Like I, I had a little reflection on New Year's Day. I like wrote down sentences that I could only write because 2023 happened. Yeah. And one of them was like, I worked in a forest. So it's so simple. Yeah. I love it. Um, so for it to be part of my work is amazing. And then it is part of my play. Like it's it's my life, basically. Yeah. Like I, I love it. I think green spaces, blue spaces do a lot for um, just mental well-being. And it's just simple access, like like, constant access.
0: It's important we don't lose that connection to nature yeah, as well, Then, yeah. and I think a lot of the work that you've, you're doing here, and I know a lot of people around the university and, and elsewhere, yeah. you know, keeping that connection yeah. to nature, especially in education, mm. is is really important. I know yeah. there was a group here based in the University of Bristol, I'll have to link it to people, but it, they took their PhD group out to the mm. forest to write these, like, little um, cards on yeah. what, that, what that meant to them, and then it found that they could return to this mm. spot and find that like, connection to nature again mm. because a lot of their work, that it was nature-based, but actually they were doing it all behind a computer yeah. or in a lab, yeah. and they lost that connection to yeah. nature very quickly after two years of being mm. in a lab. A hundred percent. You've got to
1: see what you're working with to fully understand it, and it yeah. has to be at every stage of education, not just in yeah. universities. Like I was on a train a couple of days ago, and I just ran into this guy called Phil. We just started chatting. He, he works in like, um, forest schools um he teaches like um yeah people at nursery level and then primary school level and they're centered around the outdoors and forests and he's like primary school teacher now and like there's parts of like the syllabus that he has to teach and just he's loose with it he just takes people out for a walk and like says that's a leaf of this tree like and you get a better understanding of your environment through that and it needs to happen through every stage of education every stage of life yeah
0: that's it's really important I know that you've also not long, um, not long ago, co-founded uh, a group called the Circular Climbing Collective. Yeah. Um. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll get a little plug in here for, <laughs> for, for that because I think it's important. And mm. yeah, if anyone wants to get involved.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I co-founded that with my friend Beed. Um, around May, I think we had our first session, um, and it is a space for people to come and climb. Um, that's open, and inclusive to anyone to to come and and be with people talk about mental health if they want to talk listen if they want to listen but then also be active at the same time and then we're running weekly sessions now through January it used to be fortnightly so we're up in that and it's just this place and I think having a place that's routine and regular check-in on on mental health or not even check-in but just having somewhere to turn up is really important um so yeah have been running for I guess just over six months now and yeah, it's going really well and just really excited for what it can be. Um, like as spring is coming around the corner, like running outdoor sessions, giving people access to, to those spaces and also teaching people like there's so many skills in climbing, um, and you can teach it. And it's such a simple thing to do. And then that empowers people to have another access point to the outdoors. Um, yeah, and I think more access points to the outdoors, the better. It's better. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's really important. And I think you should be proud of what, what you've done there mm. because it does look like a really, a really cool little collective. Mm. And I will leave all the links to the Instagram. I know you've got that. Yeah. Um, but also the sessions and Robin's contacts as well so that if you do want to reach out, it's based in the southwest. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: Currently, we're climbing a TCA, the mothership, um, okay. hoping to expand to like rope sessions at some point soon yeah. as well. Nice. But, I mean, bouldering, I, I did a bit during my undergrad and I'm sure
0: people listening to this will know that i got really obsessed with it in, yeah. in my like third fourth year and it is one of the things that you can sort of turn up and 3 hours go by and you've not really feel like you've you've, you've sort of like you've just let yourself loose a little bit mm. with your little mind and you you can solve these little problems on a wall and then um, and then return back to reality but you yeah. also do it with friends which is yeah. which is really nice and it's not com- it's not competitive well, for, for myself, yeah. it wasn't ever competitive. Yeah, yeah. It was just me competing against whether I could do the blue one or not. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, those funny arbitrary colors that yeah, you yeah, like run yeah, towards, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I
1: think that's a brilliant thing about it. And there's so many other sports like it, like surfing. It's yeah. it's a community based sport where you climb with people, but you don't climb against people. And because of that reason, it harbors communities. Yeah,
0: that's really important. I'm just gonna touch you. You mentioned earlier the. Um, that you did your undergrad in chemistry yeah. in this lab this lab based work mm-hmm. in Loughborough. You um you came to Bristol and wanted to connect yourself back to nature. Mm-hmm. Like you've obviously had a lot of inspiration through through stuff, but what was the main sort of driver driver there to make you want to go back to forest stuff yeah. and chemistry?
1: Yeah, um forests will have come I, I also do woodwork. Like okay. I, I'm a carver so I, I will have started that kind of just before my like final year in chemistry. And, and that gives you like a relationship with trees that's like quite personal. Um, and you kind of look much closely when you're when you're working with wood, at like the surrounding areas around you and different species and that kind of stuff. And you get a better understanding of what that tree can can give you in terms of like resources and that kind of stuff. So that got me interested in forests. What got me interested in moving to the outdoors? I, I spent a year working at Kew Gardens in their biochemistry labs and just they have weekly lectures there um just on a huge swath of different things like biodiversity that's when I first came across the concept of biodiversity properly um and I was like this is this is something that people are doing actively and it's possible um I think before that I didn't think it was possible so like through the woodwork like that brought me to the forest through Kew Gardens it showed me the possibilities of working outside and kind of just like Rechange my brain. Like I was good at chemistry, so I thought I had to do chemistry and stay in a lab. And then I thought maybe it's possible to do something else. Nice. Uh, that was
0: obviously you know sparked a lot of things, and you know you're finding yourself going on a little road trip through Europe <laughs> yeah, next, yeah. next spring. So it's yeah, exactly. always good. Um, I think we'll we'll leave it there because I think we've touched mm-hmm. a lot on your paper and obviously the climbing. Stuff as well. We'll link all of that down down below. But a really nice conversation. It's great to have you yeah, on, yeah. Robin. It's been it's been great.
1: No, it's no. Great. It's great to talk to you and thank uh Thanks for having me. Thank
0: you. Cheers, guys. Bye.